So we will be reading from the book of Genesis, um, chapter 32, uh, verses 22 to 32. So that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the, the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the men saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the men. Then the men said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The men asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the men said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God's face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Amen. Thank you, Miss Al. Thank you so much. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about a story from Scripture that involves a division between brothers, a division between fathers and sons. Um, I have been blessed in my life that I have a great relationship with my dad. I'm really blessed by that. Many of you know my dad. He's a part of this congregation, and uh, he's kind of like a father to the church in many ways. He and my mom are kind of like the, the church parents here, all right? And uh, we appreciate that. Let's give it up for them. Yeah. And we love that, that wisdom, uh, but I can, I can understand the division between fathers and sons because this is what my dad posted on Facebook. Look at this picture my dad put up on Facebook. That's me. And uh, why are you going to sell me out like that, Pops? Hey, all right, let's talk about that. All right, okay, let's take that down quick. Okay, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, today's story is a very famous story uh, from Scripture, and uh, the giants of the faith, intellectual giants of the faith, have struggled with this passage and have wrestled with this passage, and we are anticipating the Holy Spirit teaching us and wrestling with us today as we work through this passage together. This is part of this series we're in together called In Our Day. Uh, as we get ready to celebrate the 10th anniversary of us as a church family. Yeah, all right. Oh, thanks, Doug. <laughs> we felt led by the Holy Spirit to set this year apart as a year of prayer. It's not that we have one particular goal that we're praying toward, but we sense that he is 
calling us into that, this milestone year, setting this aside as a season of prayer. Prayer has always been a part of everything that we do and everything that we are as a congregation, but we feel like the Holy Spirit is asking us to press that to the forefront and inviting us into deeper places as a congregation uh, in this journey of prayer. We're going to begin that journey together uh, in the Old Testament, in the in this series that we're in together, rediscovering these well-worn paths laid out by people who've explored this wilderness before us. And as we look at God's faithfulness in those days, he's going to show us what it looks like to learn how to pray and to walk in faithfulness with him in our day. Holy Spirit, help us as we move into this passage that can be complicated and that can bring up a lot of um, emotion in us, bring up fear in us, bring up anxiety in us, bring up confusion in us. We ask that you would give us your wisdom as you walk us through this passage. And there's so much hope waiting for us here. We pray that you would make it plain and make it clear for us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, Jacob is this very important figure in the history of Israel. Just to let you know how important Jacob is, his story takes up 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. In this book that's setting the framework of this history of God's interaction with humanity. Uh, to give you a little context on those 11 chapters, Abraham, whom we all know to be a very significant figure, not just of our faith, but of other faiths and absolutely of world history. Abraham is given 13 chapters. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, who is a famous figure and ends up being the one who sets up uh, the book of Exodus and that time of the people of Israel in Egypt, Joseph is given 13 chapters. And so in the middle of that, we've got this story of Jacob that takes up 11 chapters here in the book of Genesis. Significant figure. Uh, he actually follows a, a similar pattern to the people who, who came before him and many of the generations that are going to come behind him. And unfortunately, it's this pattern of a broken brotherhood. So we know the story of Abraham, who, who becomes the father of of the nations here. And so Abraham, in this miraculous moment, even though he and his wife Sarah are unable to have children, God gives them this promise that ends up being not just a promise of hope for them, but for the entire world. And God is going to bless the entire world through them. And God promises that he's going to give them a child. God is not moving fast enough for them. And in this season of waiting, they try to take things into their own hands. They do end up producing a child through that. Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant and they produce a child, Ishmael. But God says, that's not what I promised you. And this promise isn't only for you, Abraham. It's for Sarah too. And the promise was given to her as well. And so Isaac, the child of promise, is eventually born to them when Abraham is 100 years old after an extended season of waiting this child of promise and uh so so we have isaac and, and right there off the bat there's this division between isaac and his brother 
Ishmael. And as we go back through that story in the book of Genesis, we see this division and this break that happens between these two brothers. That continues in the next generation. Isaac uh, has two sons. He has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. He marries uh, Rebekah. And so they have these twin sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. And there's also a break and a division between them as well. Esau is the firstborn, and Jacob's name means heel grasper, all right? Because as he was born, it was said that he was holding on to his brother's heel, and that the brother was born first, and he was right behind, grabbing on to his brother's heel. And that image sets up what the rest of his life is going to look like, and his relationship with his brother is going to look like grabbing after his brother and chasing after that. It can also mean supplanter or undercutter is the image that we're getting there. And so there's this break and this division that happens between them as well. Jacob ends up having 12 sons who go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's a break between them as well, between Joseph and the other 11 brothers. As the 11 brothers turn on Joseph, Joseph is sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. And so we have this pattern of broken brotherhood, this betrayal in generation after generation after generation. And Jacob's story reflects that pattern. His story is mostly told Genesis chapter 25 to, to, to 36. As we already said, he's born into this twin rivalry between him and his twin brother Esau. Uh, he wants what, es- what is rightfully Esau's. And so there's this prophecy over their lives that the younger is actually going to be over the older, even though that's not the way it worked in that, in that culture. The birthright belonged to the oldest firstborn son. But he cheats his brother out of the birthright. You can read that story. Interesting story. He ends up cheating his own father as well with the help of his mother. He steals the blessing that his father was going to give to his older brother and tricks his father into giving that to him. He and his brother were very different. Esau said was a very hairy man. All right. And Jacob was not. And so in this moment of stealing this blessing from his father, his father was old and, and was not able to see. And so he put goat skins on his arms. All right. Jacob goes in with goat skins on his arms so that his brother could feel, so that his father could feel his arms and think that he was his brother Esau. That raises a lot of questions for me about Esau. All right. We need to talk, man. Goats, okay, that's really interesting. All right, so, um, but the the father in his old age and in his blindness uh, is cheated in that moment, and and this blessing is stolen. His brother is so angry that he commits to putting him to death, and he knows that his brother is going to kill him. His mother helps him run for his life, sends him away to an uncle, uh, where he ends up working for this uncle. He he commits that if if he falls in love with the uncle's daughter that would make her his cousin, okay? So a lot of interesting stuff happening in this family, okay? And uh, convinces uh, the, the Uncle Laban that, hey, if I work for seven years, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Rachel, he's in love with Rachel. And he says, yes, he agrees to that. And then Laban also betrays him and tricks him and ends up uh, that Jacob marries his, the older daughter, Leah, instead, 
all right? And then he's like, I'll make it up to you. Okay, work seven more years, and you can marry my other daughter as well. Again, a lot of messed up stuff, okay? Messed up stuff happening. The Bible doesn't shy away from the oddness and the failures and the brokenness of not just that culture, but of our own hearts. Okay, so all of that is very plain and laid out for us here. So through all of this, we get this pattern of of all of this happening. He has two significant encounters with God. One at a place called Bethel. He gives that name because it means house of God. It means that he met God in this place. And he's given this vision. This is while he's running uh, for his life from his brother Esau. He's given this vision of heaven opening up. This vision of an open heaven and this ladder where these angels are ascending and descending up and down the ladder. And it's clear that the presence of God is all over this place. It's an incredible vision of the presence of God that he's given in this moment. He calls it Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. And then later comes this moment that we're going to be in today. He has another encounter with God. This one is quite different from the first one. And in this one, he doesn't see a vision of heaven, but instead he wrestles with heaven himself. So that's where we're going to be for the rest of the morning in this story of Jacob wrestling with God. So the first thing that we see about this passage is uh, we're told that this happens at night. So Jacob is actually on his way towards this encounter with his brother Esau. His past is catching up with him, and he's going to have this moment where it all collides and all comes to a head. Jacob and his family are about to encounter Esau, and it's said that Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. Okay? coming towards him with 400 men. All of this betrayal, all of this lying, all of this stealing, all of this undercutting, all of this heel grasping that he has been doing is now catching up with him and it's coming to meet him head on. Scholars, Old Testament scholars, experts in this will say that Esau and 400, having Esau and 400 of his men coming towards Jacob is a really bad thing, okay? Just a little academic insight on that, all right? This is bad, okay? And so they're coming for this moment of collision. And in the midst of this anxiety, it says that he pulls back, that he is alone. He leaves the camp. His anxiety is creating in him, his fear of what's coming at him, this anxiety is creating insomnia, And it says that he wanders away alone. And through the night, he wrestles with this mysterious figure that comes to overtake him out of nowhere. And he says it wrestles with him until daybreak. I think that scene, setting that scene of of it being at night is so significant for us. There's so many layers. It's not just the physical darkness of what is happening in this moment. But it's also this collision of all of this spiritual darkness. This moment of wrestling and struggling that he is in. If you've ever been out walking at night without street lights around you or whatever else, and you're out 
in nature. Or maybe you've been in your home and, and like everybody else is asleep and you're having to leave really early or something and you're trying to sneak through the house without anybody waking anybody else up, right? And it's all dark. In this place that can be real familiar, obviously, as familiar as home can be. But in the darkness, all of that familiarity is stolen away. And suddenly you lose your bearing. You can't remember where exactly everything is. You can't remember where that night table is. And then you bang your shin on it, right? And you're like, okay. But you lose your sense of bearing and your relationship to, to everything else around you. That's what the night can do to us. It takes away the sense of sight. And as we all know, that when one sense is taken away, it says that the others are heightened, and we get that. But we also understand how it can confuse our other senses when our sight is taken away. When we're not used to relying on these other senses, when we're used to relying so much on our sight, when that gets removed, it starts to even confuse these other senses that get heightened. And even in that heightening, we can't exactly understand everything that is going on. Sound gets heightened, and yet everything sounds more threatening and causes more fear when it is dark. And when the sight gets removed, we lose our bearing. We lose our direction. We lose our memory of where things are and our sense of relationship to those things that we have known so well. And even a familiar place can become foreign to us when the sight is taken away. I think it's so interesting that this is uh, another time that God has appeared to Jacob at night. He's done it before. He did it at Bethel, that, that significant moment of that open heaven moment, ladder connecting heaven and earth, clear overlap. This place, this sacred place where heaven and earth are so connected that he sees that they are the same. And that happened at night, but now it's a completely different kind of experience. It's not so much a vision that he can see, but instead it is other senses engaged and the other senses being confused over what is happening. Now it's a wrestling match with no clue who this even is that is trying to overtake him at the beginning of this story. I think it's important for us to note as we begin to move in here. So many of us are longing for a Bethel moment. We want to see heaven open up. We want to see with our own eyes how heaven and earth are overlapping. We want to sense that, feel that, be in the midst of that. That's what we want. I think it's interesting to note when this wrestling moment takes place, that this takes place later in the journey. And further down the road. For many of you, you're trying to go back to spiritual experiences that you had before. Maybe you will someday. Maybe God will give you another experience like that. But he's already rooted that experience in you. And now he's taking you into new places. Now he's opening up new senses in you. Beyond just what you can see. Beyond just a vision. And it's going to call for wrestling. And it's going to call for struggling. Some of you are in the middle of that right now. My heart is heavy for you even this morning. And yet, even in that, I have this sense of hope about what God is going to speak to you and what God is accomplishing in you right now. Some of you are locked in a battle 
and locked in a struggle with God. You're looking and you're longing for that heaven to open up again. You want a vision of heaven. Meanwhile, you don't yet realize that heaven himself has you in his grip. You can't see yet what this wrestling experience is. But looking back, you'll recognize that heaven himself has you in his grip. Perhaps your descent into this dark night is the path to new depth with God. Maybe that's what he's up to. As we've said many times before here together, and we're going to keep coming back to, the direction of deeper is down. The direction of deeper is down. So often we think about a deep spiritual experience and we want that to take us higher. We want that to be this elevating experience. And so we chase after that and chase after that and chase after that. But I'm telling you that the direction of deeper is down. And that's where he's taking many of you. And in that process, he is putting you right in the company of spiritual giants. Many who have walked this road before and have written to tell about it and bring their stories back from that experience. And they encourage us, people that we love, like C.S. Lewis, like St. Teresa of Avila, and then the person that she mentored in the faith, St. John of the Cross, who put those words and that language to this experience, calling this a dark night of the soul. These are the people that we look to because they have written the maps because they've been to these places before. And they come back telling us the good news of where this darkness can actually lead us. People like Henry Nouwen, people like St. Teresa of Calcutta, known to us as Mother Teresa, whose journals were discovered after her death. And it was scandalous to so many people as they read through. And she talked about this dark night of the soul that she experienced. Mother Teresa, this person who is so close to God, and this was her spiritual experience, and it was this scandalous moment to many people, but not to those of us who have been there before. Because we know what kind of depth God can create through those journeys. It makes perfect sense. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, he wrote this. He said that he had to come to a place of accepting the scandal of God's hiddenness. Accepting the scandal of God's hiddenness in these moments that we go through. He experienced depression. He experienced despair. He experienced the dark night. And it was in the midst of one of these deepest stretches of despair that he walked through that he wrote what became his most famous hymn, a hymn known as A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You only write something like that when you know you need a fortress to run to, when you know you need a fortress to hide in, hiding in the hiddenness of God. A fortress cannot be mighty if the foundations are not solid. Fortress cannot be mighty if the foundations are not solid. I want to share an image with you that I heard three different times from three different completely unconnected people just over this past week. I had the opportunity to be this week in a little town called Wilmore, Kentucky. 
which is home to Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, where Justin and I went to seminary. That's where we first met each other. All right, we met by moving in, both moving into this little duplex right there in this little tiny town. We shared a wall. That's how we first met each other. Across the street from Asbury Seminary is Asbury University. And I got the chance to be there with college students uh, this week and, and, and share in their chapels and tell uh, a lot of stories from Love Chapel Hill. And it was a great experience. As I was meeting with students in the cafeteria, in the uh, student center, and, and different places, three different times I had people share an image with me that so connected the image and yet these people were completely unconnected to each other they had no clue about each other they said this they said that they felt like their lives had been stacking up and building up this tall tall building and yet that building was falling apart three different times the building was falling apart and they felt like they're trying to pull these pieces together and try to reassemble it and put it back together and make it stay in place but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And I felt like the Lord just gave me a counter image of that. And the counter image is the realization that what looks like progress in stacking up this tower can actually be moving backwards in your faith. Because it doesn't matter how tall you build it, if it's not on the right foundation, it's going to collapse. And so what can look like progress of trying to put another block on top of it and another level and another layer, if the foundation is not solid, you are actually moving backwards the higher you stack that thing. And the best thing that can possibly happen for you is for it to all come crashing to the ground. Let it fall. It's okay. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be disorienting. It's going to be tragic and maybe even traumatic. But let it fall. Let it fall. The one who himself is the solid foundation, the one who is himself the rock upon which we must build all things, is telling you, let it fall and let me rebuild it. Let me rebuild it. What looks like destruction in it coming crashing to the ground is actually moving forward in your journey of faith. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to struggle. Let it fall. Let it fall. There's a pastor that I listened to out in Portland who, who recently had this observation about prayer life and about having this experience in prayer life and wrestling through and in struggling through prayer life. He says this, prayer has become less of a window to God and more of a mirror to ourselves. And that can be okay. Because in that, it is pointing out all of the places where we need healing. And if prayer is something that you wrestle with and you struggle with, and you say, I can't go there, I cannot do that. It's not that the window to God has been closed. Maybe it's that God has turned the mirror to you. And he's being gracious enough to show you the places where you need the deepest healing. And he's saying, let it fall and let me help rebuild you. I recently heard this quote. I will never forget it for the rest of my life. It says this, the straightest way to the light is not to chase the sunset west. 
It is to turn east and walk through the night toward morning. How many of us are spending our lives chasing the sunset west, trying to get every last glimmer of it because we're afraid of the dark? We feel the darkness coming on and we are afraid of it. We are frightened by it. But the straightest path to morning is to turn east and walk through the night until the light breaks again. This is where Jacob is. He's wrestling and he wrestles all the way through the night, all the way to daybreak. He wrestles all the way to daybreak. I love this image of the wrestling and the way that it is so contrasted against the, this other powerful image of a ladder up from heaven to earth, angels up and down, right? And just heaven wide open. And yet this moment that is so different, it's dark and he's wrestling and he can't even recognize the identity yet of this person that he's wrestling. He's in deep confusion as he's in the middle of this struggle. And yet that image of wrestling is so gracious because look what is happening. A person who is wrestling with God is an intimate embrace with God. God is intimately embracing you in this moment and he's letting you embrace him back. And at times maybe you're pounding on his chest in the midst of that. But he is not letting go. It is life to life contact. Not just a far-off vision about this elevated God, but life-to-life contact. Heaven himself has you in his grip, embracing you, and he is not letting you go. It was an unexpected embrace. It was not something that Jacob wanted. It was not something that Jacob saw coming. But it actually sets up what he's about to walk into. What leads him into this moment is all of this anxiety that he has about his past finally catching up with him as Esau and 400 of his closest friends are making their way towards him. And this moment of collision with all of his history and all of his past coming to a head. It's in this moment that he has this unexpected embrace in this wrestling match with God. What ends up happening after this, as Jacob and Esau have their confrontation, instead of it being a battle between these two enemies, instead Esau runs to him and throws his arms around him in embrace. And it's so beautiful because here in the Hebrew language, in the language in which this is originally written in Hebrew, the words for this embrace of wrestling that Jacob experiences through the night and the embrace of greeting that he receives from his brother, these two words of embrace, they actually rhyme with each other. And they're placed here in this story in a way that is that intentionally draws connection between this rhyming of these two words that are meant to be connected to each other. The embrace of the wrestling and the embrace of the greeting, they rhyme, they play off of each other. And what had been a dreaded encounter actually becomes a healing reconciliation. For those of you who feel the night closing in and you don't want to go there, What has been a dreaded encounter for you might actually be the healing reconciliation that you need 
the most. And the embrace of the wrestling and the embrace of the greeting and the reconciling and the healing that you did not expect, they rhyme. They rhyme. In this moment of wrestling, he asks for a blessing. Do you remember how many times he cheated and stole and was was deceptive in order to take a blessing? that didn't belong to him and in this moment he is in this wrestling match and he asks for a blessing i will not let you go until you bless me please bless me i've been lying to get it i've been stealing to get it i've been betraying to get it what i need to hear most in my life is a blessing how badly did he want to hear his father say to him i bless you jacob I bless you, Jacob. Not because you're pretending to be Esau, someone that you're not, but because of who you are and because you are my child. And because of that, I bless you. You are mine and I love you. And many of you are experiencing that and you're begging for God to bless you. Please tell me that you love me. Tell me that I am yours and that you are mine. I'm not going to let you go until I hear you say it. And he says, I have never let you go. From the beginning, I have never let you go. You think you're trying to overpower me? I have never let you go. I bless you. I bless you. You're mine. And I love you. Not because you're trying to pretend to be somebody else and therefore trick me into blessing you. No, 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 no. I see through it all. I love you. You. And I bless you. That's his word to you today. This mysterious figure asks Jacob in the midst of that, what's your name? Why does that matter? All right. You might want to introduce yourself to someone before you begin wrestling with them. All right. By the way, it's already known. It's already known. He's asking him this name to make Jacob say it out loud, to make Jacob admit and confess his identity. My name is Heel Grasper. That's what my name means. My name is Supplanter. My name is Undercutter. My name is Thief and Betrayer. My name is grasping after things that don't belong to me. That's who I am. That's what I've been called my entire life. And I've been marked by that identity. That's who I am. No, it's not. From this day forward, here is your blessing. You're going to walk under this name for the rest of your life. From here forward, your name is Israel, which means one who struggles with God. Your name is Israel, which means one who struggles with God. What a gracious gift. God's chosen people will be known by this name through the rest of history, all the way to where we stand right here today. And what does the name mean, those who struggle with God? God's chosen people, the ones who are going to carry his name, the ones who are going to live in his covenant, the ones who are going to bless the entire earth through his grace as he blesses them, are given the name struggles with God. Do you struggle with God? Do you wrestle with God? That itself is a blessing or has the potential to become that for you.
So today we speak this blessing over those among us who are struggling. Hear this blessing. We bless those who are struggling. And we bless those who are doubting. We bless those who are deconstructing and wrestling with God in the fight of your lives. You are in the company of the heroes of our faith. You are luminaries of the long night. You are saints of the magnificent struggle. Don't let go. Don't let go until daybreak. And when you get to the point you feel like you don't have the strength to keep holding on, it's okay. He's going to hold on anyway. He won't let you go. We need you. And we need your hard-earned wisdom from your journey to the depths and back again. We need people who have been there and can help us write the maps to walk other people through it. As Jacob comes through this on the other side, he walks away not only with a new name, but as a result of this, it says that, that this mysterious figure touches his hip and it wrenches his hip. And so for the rest of his life, he's walking with a limp, carrying with him the result of this encounter. Only after the fact does he realize that the struggle was with God. And we get that as he names this place that means face to face with God. I've seen the face of God and somehow I survived it. I survived the encounter. But he did not get away from that encounter unscathed. He walked with a limp that reminded him of that experience for the rest of his life. He was locked in an embrace with God He didn't yet know who it was, but he held on, and God held on to him, and he walked away changed by the embrace of God. He walked away changed by the embrace, unrelenting embrace of God. He was changed by that experience. A preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, all Christians of true joy dance with a limp. going to invite the band to come back up. In a moment, our friend Hannah is going to guide us into communion through a gift of spoken word poetry for the congregation. It's going to be an invitation into communion. It's going to welcome you into that moment. And as we share in communion together, we're reminded of this story of Jacob. And as we prepare to break the bread, and as we prepare to tear off a piece, to break off a piece of the bread and to dip it into the cup that represents the poured out blood of God himself for the salvation and freedom of the world as we participate in that breaking and that pouring out we are reminded that Jacob was not the only one who walked away with scars forever Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane leaves behind his disciples 
a number that he chose specifically to reflect the sons of Jacob and the tribes of Israel. And in his anxiety over what was coming his way, over this collision, not with his past, but with ours, of all the betrayal, of all the lies, of all the deception, as that collision was coming towards him, in anxiety, he walked away from the others and he was alone in the garden of Gethsemane. And in that moment, under the weight of the anxiety, he wrestled and he struggled. And he came to the conclusion, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And as he went to the cross for us, to take the judgment of our sin upon himself, to wrestle with our past, with our history, with our betrayal, in our brokenness, he became broken himself. And in the glory of the resurrection, we get this mystery that even though he overcame death and he healed his own death, he still willingly bears the scars of his crucifixion. And he showed the scars to his disciples to prove who he was to them. He willingly shares those. And the beautiful vision that we get in Revelation, his intimate friend John is told to behold the king, the lion of Judah. And when he turns to look at a lion, instead what he sees is a lamb that has been slain. A sacrificed lamb. A king who still bears the scars. A God who willingly still walks with a limp. He proves to us that no one, no one, not even Jesus, comes through the human experience unscathed. We all still bear our scars. He's telling you today, to allow yourself to be human and keep the scars. He allowed himself to be human. Why can't you? Jesus still bears the wounds from his encounter with us, from his embrace of us. And that embrace, unrelenting, left him marked forever. To this day, he is still the God who walks with a limb. Amen. Hideaway. After they hid away to gather for the Passover, after he prayed that death would pass over the innocent, Jesus would become the sacrifice. The God who saw our desperation and descended to sample it, to feel the grass under migrant feet, the gravity over homeless heads, to turn tables of injustice and his very own cheek, that sweat, that flesh, ligaments and bones, to suffer in oppression, to add the beat of his heart to slave song percussion, thumping at the tempo of whip, lashed muscle ripped open, innards falling like the seeds of a crushed fig. They hung him, strange and righteous fruit, 
after they gathered for the Passover, death wouldn't pass him by. Jesus would be victimized. Another gear in Rome's evil systematized. The priest and the pious conspired with empire to accuse him for loving the unlovable, for healing the untouchable, for being truth to power. They didn't know that this was real power. That Jesus picked up his disciples from the margins. He crossed cultures fishers to make fishers of humans, called them friends. When they gathered for the Passover, he broke his body and poured out his life for them. Said, taste this merriment, this new covenant, red sign testament said, take, eat, savor my commitment to the folk, to my people, to the backwoods bastard. See how I'm serving you? My back bent over like this needed bread. I'm serving you all the nourishment you'll ever need. Jesus said, come, you poor and poor in spirit, eat with me. That was his saving grace. So sinners come commune, crucify the old you, let his blood wash you through. Let it sanctify the whole you and set you free of your charges because you can't buy this kind of love. That's why he said, remember me rough. Jesus ain't smooth like the face of a coin or the barrel of a gun. Jesus don't look like metal gods that ravage nations, ravage neighborhoods, crack communities, crack addicts, crack babies, and imprison their fathers. True kings don't rock with Rome, don't need distractions, circuses, or bread, but we keep busy seeking seeds to grow empire faster, always faster, must run faster than a bullet, farther than the eye can see, must run across borders, must blend in, brown skin must jump over walls, must water the system with food desert tears, Addiction notice tears, immigrant tears, innocent tears. These are Jesus' tears. And he cried them even before they gathered for the Passover. Even before the excruciation, that stripped crucifix and the striped body rising. Jesus suffered here with us came down to earth to meet with us, to set a place for the greatest and the least of us, called out the heresy and Pharisees, just us lived and died and lived for God's glory and justice. And it rolls like the sun unearthing the day. And it rolls like a river carving away where there is none. And it rolls like a stone, rock solid. It stays like his kingdom and it flows like sweet wine in this bitter cup he sipped. Now we imbibe this somber sacrament. That's how we remember him. We loosen limbs and run to the refuge. We find him. We embrace every sister, every brother. We celebrate. God ain't got no stepkids. And you are welcome here.